Well, well, well. If it isn't Jeffrey Short in the <laughs> studio. Hey, everyone. It's Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Welcome to Business Casual. Mr. Tyler Kern is not joining us today. Um, he is with his wife. He has taken a chill day. So instead, we've brought in the one, the only, shortlist meister, Jeffrey Short. Jeff, <laughs> welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's uh, good to be here filling in for Tyler. Hope he's doing well. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, let's have a good show. Let's have a good show. <clears throat> Jeff, uh, you know, this morning traffic was atrocious. Um, I, I pinged you on a, the group <laughs> message. But for real, I was pulling in to uh, like the intersection of Field Street mm -hmm. and 75. And of course, I'm already like, oh, my God, I'm going to be late. I have to right. park. I have to do the ticket and everything. And then the stoplights are broken. <laughs> you know when they flash red? Of course, yeah, yeah. Dude, the worst <clears throat> possible place for that to happen is the intersection of an off-ramp and a highway. Like, how do you allow that to happen? That's weak. I think they did it on purpose. They were <laughs> testing us. They me? knew Short was in the studio. They had to get the nerves going a little bit. So <laughs> having the main man uh, right. a little late, you know. <laughs> they were testing us. <clears throat> wow. They knew. All right, everyone. So today's show is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we've got a lot of solid content to plow through. We're going to be chatting about drone delivery and some partnerships with Walgreens and FedEx. We're going to be doing an interview on Impossible Burger heading to grocery stores. We're going to be chatting about esports on TV and some of the partnership deals behind that potentially, as well as public transit maybe going a little more on demand than we're used to. Jeff, what are you most excited about for this show? It is a loaded show. It's a good show, obviously, like we talked about. But I mean, I think it's a very tech-focused show. Yeah. That's always exciting to see how products are going to get to consumers and I guess how consumers are going to get to those products through transportation uh, updates. So uh, a lot of tech focus today and some things that I think a lot of people should really be aware of that sometimes they can just go over your head and you realize uh, the world changes right before your eyes. And you don't even notice. Literally, so. from one day to the next, right. there is a new technology that's right. now a standard. I love it. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump right in. No time to waste. Our first story that we want to unpack is about Amazon shifting its algorithms to favor its most profitable products, but that includes its own mm -hmm. products. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic here. Basically, what we're seeing is despite some internal opposition, Amazon has changed its search algorithms to prioritize listings that translate into bigger profits for the company itself, including its own private label goods. And this is according to a Wall Street Journal exclusive. So, Jeff, initial thoughts on this, fair or foul? I mean, my first reaction was, is anyone surprised? And what's the problem? It's their website, <laughs> right? right? That, that's my gut is saying, it's their website. Wouldn't you expect them to push their own products? But the more you dig into it, obviously, it's much more complex than that. And Amazon itself is so complex as an organization in general. So I guess the real question is, are they promoting themselves as a fair marketplace or are they a retailer in which other retail organizations can sell their products? Because if they're the latter, then it makes sense. Okay, I'm a small e-commerce shop, but I want to use Amazon to sell my products. So I understand that I'm going to be second fiddle, I guess, to Amazon. Right. But if I'm partnering with Amazon under the impression that this is a fair game 
equal algorithm. If someone searches for a keyword that matches me, I should be right up at the top. Then I would obviously be very annoyed at that. And it's very interesting to just see the internal workings of Amazon. I was reading the Wall Street Journal report on this story and about how their retail unit is pushing for Amazon at the top profit profit there. But the search team is saying, hey, we shouldn't necessarily do that. So that battle there oh, so is it's, kind so of- So there's an internal right, struggle. Right, very much so. So it looks like the retail uh, arm won that battle in this yeah. case. But now that there's been this kind of backlash, we'll see if there's a, a boomerang. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting because to one end, like I, I agree with your take in that, yeah, it's their site. It's their product. I mean, like, yeah, like, why wouldn't they want to promote their own private label brands? I mean, I think uh, the the logic was grocery store chains, right? You've got your uh, your Kirkland mm-hmm. signatures, right, right? right? And so that that's like my favorite off label. Mm-hmm. I love Definitely. Kirkland signature. <laughs> it's got such an air, of to course. It. Oh, Kirkland signature. <laughs> um, it's not like Walmart or Kroger or Target are being unfair by putting their mm-hmm. private label brands on the shelf. Obviously not. But I think the issue comes down to how Amazon pushes the products and then also just the dynamic that they have among some of these retailers. So I you know, my concern is Amazon is already forcing uh, prices to go down for a lot mm-hmm. of products. If you want to stay competitive, Amazon is selling a lot of these products for cheaper than you're going to find them anywhere else. That dynamic is already making smaller businesses struggle, other retailers struggle as they try to compete with Amazon. But if you then add the layer of, okay, we're also going to force you to bring your prices down, but then we're also going to push our own products (laughs) in front of yours, it's a Mm -hmm. lose-lose. And so I I guess if I was a retailer, I would want reassurances that – yeah, we understand you're going to want to promote your own products, but at least make it a, a fair playing field. At least make it um, you know, something that the end user can cycle through things that are at least the most popular. I mean, you can control mm-hmm. how you see right, it, right. lowest to highest, highest rated. Um, but if the natural algorithm is going to be most profitable plus we're going to push our products, <laughs> yeah. um, that might leave a lot of retailers salty. Yeah, I, I, I think you can definitely understand why retailers would be upset about that. And the grocery store comparison is actually a really interesting one. And I'd love to see the science behind are people buying things off the eye level shelves more? Do you know just the the consumer science there? Because I was looking at right. the Amazon e-commerce uh, statistics, basically. If you're not on the front page, two-thirds of all purchases are made on that first results page. 100%. And what's you know, even more crazy to me is that even just the top two rows on the first page are getting more than half the results of all purchases. <laughs> so it's pretty ridiculous how thin it gets very quickly. Um, whereas in the grocery store, maybe you have just a wider scope of vision and it's not as, you know, the bigger box is obviously coming up on that first search result on Amazon. Whereas in the grocery store, a stick of butter is a stick of butter. They're all kind of equally out in the shelf. So I would like to see the comparison there, but um, it is a good one. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a very interesting conversation, just the whole Amazon effect in general. I mean, if prices are getting driven down, I guess you have to say it's a good thing for the consumers for sure. But if you are an e-commerce player, is it an unfair advantage? I mean, 
what are the benefits of being on Amazon? You're probably getting more eyeballs just by being there. But if you're getting squashed by their own products, you can see why you might not be getting what you signed up for, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, looking over the the article right now, I just want to point out another another few interesting points here. Um, that it's really meant to boost items that are most profitable, mm-hmm. which it seems like the algorithm will then naturally push more Amazon right. private label products. Um, and what's interesting is Amazon is actually denying. Yeah. That they're yeah. they're changing their criteria to rank search results. That the Wall Street Journal mm-hmm. has it wrong is what they say. <laughs> so it's interesting. I mean, it sounds like there's an internal struggle as to how should Amazon classify its products moving forward. Um, but yeah, I, I, I guess we're just gonna have to see how it plays out, and we're just gonna have to keep our ears to the ground because I really do think that if Amazon doesn't leave reassurances that. Yeah, we we understand we're bringing prices down, mm-hmm. but we're also going to make it an even playing field. If they're, if the final outcome of this is us as a brand are able to kind of subsidize the retail mm-hmm. portion of our company uh, and force prices down, but also we're going to boost our own products and you know your products that we're forcing you to bring your prices down on will not get that boost. I think that's really going to create some unhappiness in the space. So yep. we're just going to have to gonna have to see how this plays out well the good thing is the market usually does a good job of settling these things naturally so that's we'll see how it goes the old market right ye old, <laughs> old market. reliable uh, old yeah. reliable <laughs> all right next up i want to talk about drones we're going from amazon to drones it's you know and actually it's it's interesting amazon has a drone delivery right. service that they announced back in june um this is an exciting story. Uh, when they announced it back in June, it was like, hey, our drone delivery service is coming soon. Well, turns out it's not coming soon enough because mm-hmm. another drone delivery program it looks like it might beat them to the punch. So there's another partnership that's joining the fray of drone delivery. We're seeing Walgreens, including, uh, yeah, we're seeing Walgreens and we're seeing FedEx. It's both of them. They are partnering um, with... Alphabet's drone delivery service called Wing. Interesting stuff. So right now they're set to deliver food, set to deliver drinks, and over-the-counter meds and other basic amenities via drone. Thoughts, Jeff? <laughs> I have a lot of questions about the drone space, I and mean, we talk about it a lot. We've, you, know, you just came back from InterDrone, of course, in Las Vegas, so we heard all the perspectives from the people really in the know. Um, I don't know how much we really spoke about delivery there. And in the delivery space in particular, I have just so many questions about, we talk about the last mile in delivery and how important that is. So you've seen all these retailers really emphasize how customers can get things same day, turned around, um, groceries, whatever it is, they can either pick it up or get it delivered. But we don't really talk too much about like the last 100 feet of drone delivery. And that's kind of where I, you know, start raising my eyebrows. So what is exactly the end of this journey? Is it going to land on your porch? Is it going to land on your roof, your driveway, whatever? Um, what are the privacy concerns? What are the safety concerns? Really, the safety is is kind of my issue, um, potentially. So they're testing this in Christianburg, Virginia, has a population of 20,000. So I wonder, is this uh, indicative of just your average population, your average density of a town in the United States? So um, 
I would imagine in a city or a town of 20,000, there's going to be people walking on the sidewalks, walking their dogs, there's cars, there's buses, everything going on. So how are they reassuring people that this is going to be safe? Um, and actually, they've been testing drones, the US Department of Transportation has, since 2016. So this is kind of ground zero for <laughs> drone tests, which I kind of just thought was interesting. But um, I haven't really heard, I've seen in the, every article, they explain, oh, you're going to be able to get this product, right. and whatever, but they don't really talk about how they are going to really assure me that I'm going to be safe just as a bystander on the sidewalk, yeah. right? So we'll see when 10 different delivery brands are all doing this. Is it going to, you know, cause me panic in the streets when right. I'm seeing 10 drones with large sodas flying over my head? I don't know. I mean, here are some uh, little points of information about um, why this partnership is interesting. So the drone itself has a delivery range of about six miles mm -hmm. from Walgreens. But I think this is what's interesting is that 78% of U.S. citizens live within five miles of a Walgreens, yeah. which I guess is pretty accurate. <laughs> I, I know I am less than five miles from I Walgreens. For sure. And so yeah. I, I really think what we're going to see is because the FAA is still a little testy on who it wants to approve – uh, you know, Wing was actually the first drone operator certified by the FAA as an air carrier. Uh, Amazon followed suit after that for their delivery program. Um, but since it's still a little testy, it's not like everyone's just getting certifications for delivery with drones. I think this is really just an opportunity for these legacy brands right now. Mm -hmm. I don't think the technology, I don't think the regulations are at a place where the small players are going to be able to break in yeah. to this and enjoy Um you know, the fruits of this, which I wonder, you know, is that going to have a, a positive effect on business that can have a negative effect? Like will legacy brands being able to deliver mm -hmm. with drones uh, impact maybe how DoorDash or Grubhub uh, approach their partnerships? Will now Grubhub partner with a drone company to do mm -hmm. deliveries from, you know, and then they partner with your McDonald's and everything right. instead of McDonald's <laughs> doing the, yeah. the drone delivery. Yeah. It's it's an interesting dynamic. Um, but like you said, regulations still don't permit flights over crowds yeah. or over urban areas, which I, I need more specifics on what that means because how else are these drones supposed right. to get to people? And like, can, it, can they drive over cars? Are yeah. they going to have to only maneuver over trees and sidewalks? Like, it's... And at that point, do you lose the convenience? If I have to go to some drone center to right. pick up my burger, why don't <laughs> I just drive to McDonald's? You right. know what I mean? So there's right. definitely uh, a lot to be sorted out, I think. And another interesting aspect here is um, that, you know, Walgreens is obviously a place where you also pick up prescription medications. Um, mm -hmm. It's got a pharmacy. But as of now, there are no uh, regulations in place and there aren't assurances that they can safely transport prescription medications mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, won't guarantee someone yeah. might not and you need to shoot make down sure the drone, steal that. your prescription yeah, you, meds. You don't right? want that lost in the skies. Exactly. So that's uh, got to be done carefully. So I, I'm curious to see if that evolves anytime right. soon. Um, but yeah, it, I mean, if there's a day when my prescription medications can get delivered to me safely via drone, I think we've then reached yeah, the future. Definitely. We're finally in the future. All right, we're going to take a quick 30-second break. When we come back, we're going to be chatting Impossible Burgers, headed to grocery stores. We'll be back in one sec. Are you tired of all job postings looking the same and want to find a way to help yours stand out? Get yourself a market-scale job cast. 
Jobcast are a compelling piece of recruitment content that differentiate your job post above all the others. What is a Jobcast, you might ask? They're a short podcast that gets to the heart of what makes your company unique and stand out in a world full of copycats and cheap knockoffs. Once produced, the Jobcast can be added to your job posting and put on your website. Stop getting lost in the job board shuffle and start standing out with the Market Scale Jobcast. All right, we're back. Jeff, we're chatting Impossible Burgers headed to grocery stores. So first up, I'd like to welcome our guest. His name is Professor H.G. Parsa. He's a professor of lodging management at the University of Denver. He has an MS in food science. H.G., how are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? It's a pleasure to have you on the call. So, Glad to be here. Yeah, Glad to be here. of course. So before we get into the uh, the conversation here with you, I want to break down this topic for our audience. So basically what we're seeing is that starting today, this is probably the most timely story we've <laughs> ever done, Impossible Burgers are finally in grocery stores. So there's going to be 27 Gelson's markets in Southern California that will now be stocking the faux meat. Um, and it basically has plans to reach every region in the U.S. by the middle of next year. Uh, you can compare this to Beyond Meat, uh, Beyond Meat, excuse me, which is already in Whole Foods, Target, Sprouts, and other grocers since June. So now that Impossible Burgers is hitting the scene, I think competition is going to be more aggressive now. So, HG, uh, you know, the, the rollout for this has been really focused. Over the last week, they've been teasing uh, that Impossible is coming to shelves near you. They're playing up the marketing strategy. Do you think that having these burgers accessible and ready for home chefs is going to live up to the hype? Absolutely. I tried the burger, by the way. It is fabulous. Hmm. You yes. can't tell the difference. Before that, I spent 15 years in hamburger business. I know hamburger tastes like, it should taste like. Um, question is, by putting them in the grocery stores, these two companies are putting a pressure on the restaurant companies, saying that, look, our product is so good, people are demanding it in the grocery store. Mm. If the guys don't put on your menu in your restaurants, you're going to be behind now, see okay. that that's interesting. Yeah. So, so you're seeing this move as actually being a a point of pressure for the restaurant industry to get them, you know, quick service restaurants, fast casual, even uh, even higher end restaurants to jump on board yeah. faster. Yeah, I'm surprised. Red Robin, the hamburger, the gourmet hamburger place right here in Denver, they should have that on their menu. Because it's a expanding hamburgers beyond beef. So that is what's happening now by putting the grocery store, getting that consumer acceptance. When that happens, they will demand the restaurant, hey, how come you don't have it? Right. That's what's going to happen next. Right. So uh, another aspect of this I think is very interesting is um, the challenges that are going to come with distribution and logistics, which I think are the most crucial challenges that come with growth like this. Um, so yep. what are your recommendations for Impossible Foods? You know, What are they going to have to keep in mind as they expand beyond just B2B restaurant delivery, but now they're doing B2B grocery delivery and distribution and, and logistics? Excellent. 
excellent point. Let me give you this a good example from Oprah. Okay? <laughs> Love it. When Oprah mentions a product, it happened, good friend of mine, the ice cream shop, her name was mentioned Oprah. Within three days, her website crashed <laughs> because demand is so high. Wow. <laughs> she said, don't do that, Oprah. You're killing my website. Couldn't keep up. It took them three months to recover. She's doing fabulous. She has second, third store. She's great. What's the point? point is, once the big doll comes calling, is impossible for the ready to supply that large quantity worldwide or nationwide. That is my concern. Are the suppliers ready with their production strategies, hardcore, and materials? That's where it is. When McDonald calls, it's going to be a tsunami. Right. That's going to happen. Yeah, right. Are the suppliers ready for it? Yeah, which which I, I think is, is the core of the conversation here. I mean, do they have the infrastructure? Do they have the manpower? Do they have, yeah. um, you know, do, do they even Are have, McDonald's? yeah, exactly. Do they even have the supply right. to, you know, if McDonald's yeah. rings, if Wendy's rings and they want uh, the Impossible Burger on their menu? Are yeah. they ready to sign that deal? Or is that like, oh, give us a year, and by then, you know, are, are they even going to want it? Correct. Right. Second thing is, when the big burger companies come calling, first thing they will say, our burger should be different than Burger King. Right. Can you make a variation? Don't sell the same thing to everybody. See what I mean? Right. Do they have the R&D ready to give that Different flavors of the burgers, just like ice cream. You can't sell the same vanilla to everybody. Okay? So it's just not impossible burger anymore. Impossible burger with the variation. Different sizes. Do they have baby size? Kids pack. Do they have that? That's easy. So different companies are going to ask different flavors, different variations. Are they ready with their R&D? That's one question we have to answer. Yeah. And I, I also know that the, the move to grocery stores and the kind of the cost for yeah. paying for shelf space can be a big That's money correct. sink the first time around. Exactly. Um, do yes. you think that the move to stores is going to turn a profit sooner than later? Or is it just going to be a money sink for the first few years, but they're going to balance it out by wins in you know partnerships maybe or just the exposure? It is just a marketing expense. They are not planning to make any money within a year or two. I don't think so. By the time, by the time they pay for shelf space, logistics, distribution, and discounts and returns, yeah, mistakes, all that, I think they will make the money in a year or two. It takes time to get that supply chain going. So... It is, for, for them, good media, like we are talking, okay? Good free publicity. That's their getting. It's worth a million, by the way. It's worth a lot. All right. H.G. Parsa, professor of lodging management at the University of Denver. Thank you so much for joining us on the call. It was a pleasure getting to chat. This wonderful talk. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. 
I love that. I yeah. love that. No, I, mean, I think it's... he he brought up a bunch of great points. Obviously, the Oprah example is something <laughs> that is is seriously a real thing, though. I mean, that happens to people. These small and like a Shark Tank, these small businesses that all of a sudden get exposed to millions and millions of people. And when you're dealing with like an Oprah audience, a very dedicated, uh, informed audience, um, so that is a concern. I have a good problem to have, I guess. Um, and, but then the other thing I thought was really interesting is just the variation of the burgers. So people do go to, I mean, how many times you've been driving down the highway and you see Burger King on the left side of the street and McDonald's on the right, people are making that decision. I want Burger King because I like the Whopper over the Big Mac or vice versa. So how are they going to differentiate the impossible burger? If I can get the impossible burger at McDonald's or Burger King for the same price, what's going to be the decision-making process there. So they do need to kind of, I guess, differentiate the burger maybe a little bit. Because you go to a McDonald's because you say maybe the beef is a little better than Burger King or vice versa. So uh, we'll see if they do uh, make any modifications to the specific restaurants. Yeah, it'll be interesting. All right, Jeff, we want to talk esports now. (laughs) Uh, Fill us in on what's happening in the esports world and how it's blending a little bit with the broadcast world. Yeah, so moving on from burgers to video games, uh, <laughs> it sounds like a good Friday afternoon yeah, to me. Yeah, man, for real. <laughs> and a good radio segue, but Ven uh, <laughs> is a new uh, startup. It's started by entrepreneurs Ben Cousin and Ariel Horn, who recently raised $17 million to start a 24-7 gaming TV network. Um, that is a TV network, not a streaming service or anything like that, so... It's kind of the old school model, I guess, by today's standards and the esports standard. They're going to have studios in L.A. and New York. They're going to be doing all sorts of different content, obviously covering the live huge esports events, but also reality TV news uh, revolving around esports. So uh, it's a $150 billion industry, just video games. And they have had G4 in the past as a video game home on TV. It didn't really work, though. It's gone. So this is a... New venture for video game content. Uh, these guys are pretty confident it will work, and obviously the 17 million is a sign of confidence as well. 200 million people watch gaming content on YouTube every day, and Twitch, a very popular streaming site, has 20 million subscribers. So there's definitely, in my opinion, demand for something like this. Um, and obviously, it's not out yet. It's coming out in 2020. That's mm. the plan. So we'll see how it works. But um, it's, I think, a, another natural progression in the growth of esports is now this uh, wide distribution opportunity. Yeah, well, I, I wonder, is there going to be any kind of paywall for accessing the content? Do you know? Well, I think it'll be part of like your DirecTV package, mm-hmm. or they're also going to Hulu, Roku, a couple of different streaming services. So they are trying to get into that area because they do know that. And I was just talking yesterday to... SMU Guildhall director Gary Brubaker. Guildhall is the video game focused degree, uh, graduate degree at SMU. Yeah. Um, And he was saying, he was telling me a little bit about G4 and the history of it. Um, Gamers are, the way he put it was, they see a TV, they don't necessarily think about cable. They see a vehicle to get their video game on. You know what I mean? They just see it as a screen. So they're maybe more used to the streaming side of things than, than getting excited about cable. But they are trying to do a little bit of both here with Venn. Yeah, and it's interesting. I wonder if it's going to, I don't know, materialize into more 
subscriptions to Hulu, right? Like, let's mm -hmm. say there is an untapped market here of a, a gaming audience that doesn't really stream, mm -hmm. and now suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, I right. want to watch gaming TV. But it could also feel like a 30 years too late gaming <laughs> version of MTV. Yeah, you know well, they I mean? did compare themselves to MTV right. and, and what ESPN did for sports. So that's kind of what they are hoping to do. So it's yeah, it's, it's bizarre. <laughs> it's a business model that I feel like isn't super popular, but I'm. I'm surprised they didn't go for, we're going to start our own streaming right. hub, right, like right. every other media conglomerate, um, because I think that is rubbing people the wrong way, and it's definitely mm -hmm. hurting their pockets. Yeah. I mean, we're basically paying, if we want to watch everything we used to be able to watch with a cable package, we're mm -hmm. paying the same, if not more now, in streaming <laughs> prices, Right. because uh, everyone wants to own their own channel. So right. the fact that they're not going for that, and they're wanting to integrate and create a channel within an another platform, I think shows some awareness of how the market mm -hmm. is moving and what people want, which is accessibility. Yeah. They don't want another paywall. So, right. uh, I mean, especially the gaming audience. I feel like the gaming audience is very in tune with, like, <laughs> the whole piracy world. Right. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like a lot of people that are gamers grew up and, like, I've got BitTorrent going uh -huh. in the background, uh -huh. you know, or, or just generally understand how to consume content and get the content right. they want. So throwing up a bunch of paywalls in front of a business model that on its face seems a little archaic, uh, I think would be a bad move. So I'm glad that they're trying to integrate with some other channels that already exist. Yeah, and um, I know we're short on time, so I do want to just squeeze this last story in. Speaking of things that people are familiar with, I think Uber and Lyft, these ride-sharing apps are now becoming uh, pretty commonplace for many Americans of all ages. And now in Jersey City, New Jersey, the uh, community there is partnering with Via, which is another ride-sharing app. Uh, to make their bus routes more efficient, instead of going to the bus stop, you're just going to call a bus basically on demand. It's going to be like Uber Pool, basically. Um, it's a city of 265,000 people, so we'll see how quickly it takes off. There's something similar actually going on in Plano, Texas with the kind of door-to-door -door public transit. Yep. But again, kind of like the drones, I have a lot of questions about, am I going to get swung off my route wildly? Because in a city of 250,000 um, am I going to be zigzagged all across town on my route? So uh, we'll see how that goes. That's going to be coming up pretty soon, five days a week there from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting service. Um, the idea of on-demanding your bus, right. I feel like works when it exists in a city that does not have really solid, comprehensive, well-funded public transit. Mm -hmm. It's like opening the, the the door for this business model and, um, you know, for the idea of on-demand public transit um, to enter the scene and thrive, which I think is really interesting. And I, I, I like the idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, I, if done right, I feel like it could uh, become a super convenience. Yes. Um, and maybe a more equal, like, ecologically friendly convenience well I, they did say uh 10 of their 40 buses will be electric so they yeah. are keeping that in mind as well yeah uh, exactly so it, it's a really interesting dynamic but i also look to um columbia missouri for example mm -hmm. where i went to school right. they've got a fleet of like only green buses and they have uh, one of the most robust um, kind of city public transit systems that I've seen in a long time, all funded, you know, just like publicly through mm -hmm. your tax dollars. Um, and it's very efficient and their app is really, really modern. 
um, MoDOT, they call it, right? <laughs> yeah, Missouri Department of Transportation and like the the city of Columbia. I forget exactly what it's called, but um, but yeah, it's it's interesting that this is the direction they're taking and that this is an avenue that's opening up. It almost makes me think: Should we be having a conversation around you know why doesn't Plano have a more reliable public mm-hmm. transit system? Why does New Jersey feel like it needs to have on-demand buses for you to get places on time? You know, is the infrastructure lacking too? Mm-hmm. Is it that the like we just don't have enough bus stops? Um, I don't know. It's it's just a, an interesting conversation, and though it's a really cool idea, I think it should get people thinking about what does public transit look like in your city, and um, yeah. you know how should it evolve? Well, I was just gonna wrap up with. I mean, as these ride-sharing apps do get more affordable and more available. I think cities are going to have to reassess their public transportation. I think this is a kind of a step in the right direction. I think it might be a little bit messier in practice than it is on paper. I think on paper, it's great. Oh, I can take my cheap bus. This is going to be about $2 a ride. Right. right. I can do it door to door. It's awesome. But again, I, all I want to know when I'm getting on public transit is my time door to door. I want to know if I have to go to work and be there at 9 a.m., that I need to take the 8.30 bus or the 8.40. So now if there's some variance in the time that it will take me to get to work, I'm just not even going to take it. (laughs) So they have to kind of keep that in mind. I'm sure they are. But again, it's an experiment, so it could go one way or the other. Yeah. You're very right, Jeff. All right. Well, we're going to play some smooth hip-hop beats (laughs) for you as we say goodbye. This was another great episode of Business Casual. Jeff, we're going to have to get you back on again soon. We need another short list. I've been I've been missing my daily <laughs> yeah, updates. Yeah. Um, but thank you, everyone, for listening. Jeff, thank you for joining us in the studio. Anytime. It's a pleasure always having you on. I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B, and we will see you next time on BizCash. Adios. Adios.